Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. In this final episode of our series, Don't Waste Your Life, Rule It for God, we will examine a very common feeling among Christian men, that their secular work itself is a necessary evil, but only of secondary importance in our mission to spread Christ's agenda of righteousness over the earth. Is that true? This episode seeks to apply a biblical worldview of work and rest to our understanding of our mission. Thanks for joining us today for Season 4, Episode number 5 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. At the conclusion of the creation account given to us at the beginning of Genesis, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation." In Exodus 20, verse 8, we are given the command both to work, as God did, and to rest, as God did. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So let's look at the biblical worldview first of work. Six days you shall labor. Let's observe first, in the beginning there was work. The Bible begins to talk about work as soon as it begins to talk about anything. The Bible refers to God's actions to create the universe as work. In fact, he depicts the magnificent project of cosmos invention with language that refers to the regular work week. Genesis repeatedly shows God at work using the Hebrew word mulch, the word for ordinary human work. Tim Keller observes, In the beginning, then, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later, or something human beings were created to do, but that was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have a more exalted inauguration. From his book, Every Good Endeavor. Point two in the biblical worldview of work is that our calling to work is fundamental to bearing God's image. The opening chapters of Genesis leave us with a striking truth. Work was part of paradise. It is part of God's perfect design for human life because we are made in God's image and part of his glory and happiness is that he works. My father is always at his work to this day, said Jesus, and I too am working. The fact that God put work in paradise reminds us that it was not a result of the fall, as is often thought. Work was part of the blessedness of the garden before the fall. Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sex. Without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. People who are cut off from work because of physical or other reasons quickly discover how much they need work to thrive emotionally, physically, and spiritually. 
The third part of the biblical worldview of work is that the job description of our work is to fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over it. The word subdue indicates that though all God made was good, it was still to a great degree undeveloped. To subdue the earth is to explore the created world and harness its laws for the good of mankind. From legislators who design laws to keep order in civil society to engineers who harness the laws of creation in order to solve human problems to scientists who discover those laws, the human concept of vocation is rooted in God's call to mankind to subdue the earth. God left creation with deep, untapped potential for cultivation that Adam, Eve, and their progeny were to develop through their labor. Al Walters writes, The earth had been completely unformed and empty. Then, in the six-day process of development, God had formed it and filled it, but not completely. People must now carry on the work of development. By being fruitful, they fill it even more. By subduing it, they must form it even more. As God's representatives, we carry on where God left off. But this is now to be a human development of the earth. The human race will fill the earth with its own kind, and it will form the earth for its own kind. That from creation regained. Part of the righteous rule of Adam and Eve— Exercising dominion for the high king has always meant helping creation reach its full potential. Spreading Christ's kingdom today means restoration of what is broken, but also fulfilling the potential God designed into humans and into the earth. The fourth point to the biblical worldview of work is that the material world matters. Developing the potential of creation is our primary calling because God's creation matters greatly to him. In fact, the story of salvation is really the story of creation. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink argues the essence of the Christian religion consists in the reality that the creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. For Christians, all work has dignity, no matter how menial, because it reflects God's image in us, but also because the material universe we are called to care for matters to God. The biblical doctrine of creation harmonizes with the doctrine of the incarnation in which God takes on himself a physical body. It harmonizes with the biblical view of marriage, which commands the joining of bodies in sex to accompany the joining of hearts in marriage. It harmonizes with the calling of the Messiah in Isaiah 61 to both proclaim the word and restore physical flourishing. It harmonizes with resurrection doctrine in which God redeems not just the soul, but the body. It harmonizes with Romans 8.21, where we are told that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. These all demonstrate how pro-physical Christianity is. God loves his creation. Tim Keller again continues, whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. In fact, our word culture comes from cultivation. 
Just as he subdued the earth in his work of creation, so he calls us now to labor as his representatives in a continuation and extension of that work of subduing. And yet, there's an even greater reason why this material world matters to God. Our creation calling is to exercise dominion over our kingdom because it will one day be God's throne. The ESV study notes explain the expression in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, God rested. Quote, as reflected in various ancient Near Eastern accounts, divine rest is associated with temple building. God's purpose for the earth is that it should become his dwelling place. It is not simply made to house his creatures. The concept of the earth as a divine sanctuary runs throughout the whole Bible, coming to a climax in the future reality that the Apostle John sees in his vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21.4 reads, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This earth matters to God. He's going to spend eternity dwelling here. And the fifth point to our vocational calling from a biblical perspective is this. It is an assignment to serve our neighbor in love. No one saw more clearly than Martin Luther that this verse elevated ordinary secular work to the same level as the so-called sacred work of ministry. In his commentary on Psalm 147, he asks, So how does God feed every living thing today, which is what Psalm 147 says? He answers that he does it through humanity's vocational calling. God does it through the farmer, the trucker, the retailer, In today's world, the website designer, the police who protect the exchange of money. The biblical view of vocational work is that it is a way to fulfill the two greatest commandments. One, it is loving God by obedience to his command to develop the full potential of the creation he loves and which is a reflection of himself. And two, it is loving our neighbors by serving them through our vocational work. The biblical worldview of our work is so exalted, our role and mission being so important, that we need to be very careful that we stay rested. So let's turn to the biblical worldview of rest. From Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In my view, one of the great tragedies of Christianity today is that for the most part we are shaped by one of two imbalanced views of the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. One view argues that the fourth commandment is part of the Old Testament law and therefore not relevant for Christians. This view misunderstands the various categories of Old Testament law. The ceremonial law, which had to do with feast days and purification rituals, was designed to point to God's holiness and, according to Hebrews, is fulfilled in Christ. 
The second Old Testament category of law was civil. Such laws spelled out justice for society. They were specific to Israel's unique calling to be a theocracy, but with some exceptions, provide a pattern of general equity for all nations. The third category of Old Testament law is the moral law, which is summarized by the Ten Commandments. New Testament teaching reinforces nine of the Ten Commandments, showing that the moral law of the Old Testament does come into the New Testament. The fact that God puts the fourth commandment right up there with you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, makes it problematic for Christians to just ignore this commandment. Yet, it is the fourth commandment that is the one commandment not repeated in the New Testament. The opposite view imports the fourth commandment, which was originally given just to one nation, into the New Testament era, and demands that Christians all over the world make the same commitment to obeying the fourth commandment that was required of Israel. But in the New Testament era, we take the gospel into the cultures of every other nation, cultures unlike Israel that do not practice a weekly Sabbath. So let's look at two aspects of keeping the fourth commandment for Christians. The fourth commandment is both a creation ordinance and a moral calling for God's covenant people. In Exodus 20, the reason for keeping the Sabbath was the creation pattern. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. That's, again, creation ordinance. But when Moses repeats the fourth commandment 40 years later in Deuteronomy 5, the reason for keeping the Sabbath was God's salvation of his covenant people. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So let's try to look at the application of these two aspects of the fourth commandment. First, the Sabbath as a creation ordinance, resting one day in seven. During the French Revolution, an attempt was made to have a 10-day work week, but the machinery started breaking down. The factory workers concluded there may be a ratio of exertion to rest built into the physical world. Here are some practical thoughts about implementing this principle of creation ordinance. First, it is not doing the type of work required for your vocation. My father was an electronics engineer, which meant sitting at his desk all week. He renewed by puttering around his properties, especially his cottage. As a former pastor and one who now releases a podcast on Sunday evening, for which I want to pray Sunday afternoon, I take my day of physical rest and non-vocational work on Mondays. That day, I try not to focus on our ministry at all. I ignore email and all calls, but emergency one. The second principle of resting is it does something else that you enjoy. As a busy pastor with five kids and caring for a father with Alzheimer's, I went through the experience of burnout. I later gave careful thought to what renews my emotional tank. What I realized filled my emotional tank was making love with my wife, playing sports with my kids, getting out into nature, and reading novels. I believe that what renews us emotionally is doing what we enjoy. It sounds crass and worldly, but another way to say that is doing what brings you pleasure. 
I think this principle explains why pastors sometimes struggle the most Sunday night with lust and looking at porn. Their emotionally empty tank exposes them to the pull of the wrong kinds of pleasure. The third way to rest is that it is being free from things you have to do. I try for at least 24 hours to get a break from chores I don't feel like doing. I realize this could be a formula for selfishness, but most of us work five days giving us a sixth for the honeydew list, and being the best me to go hard six days requires that I take seriously the creation principle of rest. By the way, as a husband of five kids at home, I also tried really hard to give my wife a weekly break from caring for the kids. I think this is a creation principle. So let's move on to the application of the second aspect of the Sabbath as a moral calling for God's people to be spiritually renewed. I believe the Bible teaches us to set apart the Lord's Day, not just to rest, but to set apart the Lord's Day in some way for the Lord. In the application above, the focus was on resting from work. This second part of the application focuses on the phrase, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The early Christians changed the day of worship from the Saturday Sabbath of Judaism to Sunday, the Lord's Day, because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. However, the early Christians did not rest from work on the Lord's Day. It was like our Monday, the first day of the work week. So they met for worship after work, which explains why Paul talked until midnight in Acts 20. Sunday, remember that was the first day of the week, has been celebrated by Christians as the day of worship since the Sunday of Christ's resurrection. But that day of worship was not a day of rest until 300 years later when Constantine made Sunday a day of rest in the Roman Empire. I believe that the whole concept of Sabbath, a day for rest, reflection, renewal, and recalibration, was designed by God to be a great blessing to us. Some Christians have turned it into a legalistic rule about whether you can eat out at a restaurant or watch football games on Sunday afternoons. Believe me, I know. I was one of them. But the fourth commandment, as all God's commandments are, is given to us by God as a great blessing. Which is why Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In fact, I believe that giving God the first fruits of our time is very much like giving God the first fruits of our earning power. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Someone has defined time as a limited resource extended only by giving the first part back to God. I believe this principle of money management applies to our management of other resources like time. When Genesis 2 says that God rested from his work of creation, resting had to mean more than just taking a break from the exertion of working. God doesn't get tired after all. Resting must imply, at the very least, reflecting upon and delighting in what he had made. Could a rest day be for renewal of our perspective, our spiritual energies, and our love relationship with Jesus? Gordon MacDonald, in his book, Ordering Your Private World, identifies three principles of genuine rest. Number one, looking back, closing the loop. He writes, when God rested, he looked upon his work enjoyed its completed appearance, and then reflected upon its meeting. 
And God saw that it was good, Genesis 1.10. So you could say that on the seventh day, God closed the loop on his primary creation activity. He closed it by resting and looking back upon it to survey what had been accomplished. After the first time I spoke at a men's breakfast with my son, who coaches high school football, when we grabbed a Coke afterwards, the first thing he wanted to do was to evaluate how everything we did went. I was shocked. But in the world of football and in many other secular fields, the planning of the next event begins with an evaluation of the past game films. Why wouldn't our review of last week be a natural starting point for meeting weekly with our CO? The second of McDonald's principles for genuine rest is this, present recalibration, returning to the eternal truths. He writes, we are daily the objects of a bombardment of messages competing for our loyalties and labors. We are pushed and pulled in a thousand different directions, asked to make decisions and value judgments to invest our resources and our time. By what standard of truth do we make these decisions? Thus, rest is not only looking back at the meaning of my work and the path I have so recently walked in my life, but it is also a fine-tuning of my inner navigational instruments so that I can make my way through the world for another week. Might the Lord's Day be the opportunity to read that Christian book, read a longer passage of Scripture in one sitting, go to the Colson Center's What Would You Say website to sharpen your skills at promoting the biblical worldview, or pick up a dictionary to do a word study on the fruit of the Spirit, our Mormon friend Stephen Covey calls this process the sharpening of our saw. McDonald's third principle of genuine rest is this, future strategizing, defining our mission. He says, when we rest in the biblical sense, we affirm our intention to pursue a Christ-centered tomorrow. We ponder where we are headed in the coming week, month, or year. We define our intentions and make our dedications. McDonald continues, General George Patton demanded that his men know and be able to articulate exactly what the current mission was. What is your mission? He would frequently ask. The definition of the mission was the most important thing a soldier could carry into combat. Based on that knowledge, he could make his decisions and implement the plan. That is exactly what happens when I pursue biblical rest. I take a hard look at my mission. I want to close with a final reason for making Sabbath rest part of the pattern of your life. Our greatest calling in life is to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. As every marriage counselor knows, all love relationships require time apart alone with each other. And the love bond between us and our master Jesus is the source of all the spiritual fruit that will bring him honor. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples.
To summarize this episode, in our series, Don't Waste Your Life, Rule It for Jesus, we've seen that overcoming disordered living requires, first, a conviction that my inner world of the spiritual will govern the outer world of activity, second, that such intentionality will require us to set apart some time meeting at the bridge of our lives with our Admiral to discuss our course setting for the upcoming week, third, a clear mission destination which Jesus gave us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Fourth, undergirding our mission with the only power that can enable us to accomplish it, prayer. Today we observed that part of the righteous rule of Adam and Eve as they exercised dominion for the high king has always meant helping creation reach its full potential, which is the doctrine of vocation. Spreading Christ's kingdom today means restoration of what is broken, but also fulfilling the potential God designed into humans and into creation. That is why secular work is a fundamental part of our mission. Spreading rightness, wholeness over the earth happens through our vocational work because that work is to continue God's creative work of bringing out creation's potential. We saw five reasons why secular work matters to God. First, God himself is a worker. Second, God designed us to be workers to bear his image. Third, God left the creation of the earth unfinished and commanded humankind to finish his work. Fourth, this material world matters infinitely to God. In fact, this physical earth matters so much to God that he will not only one day fully redeem it, but one day inhabit it as his dwelling place. Fifth, vocational work is a way of fulfilling the two greatest commandments, loving God so much that we develop the earth that images his glory and loving our neighbors by serving them in our vocation. Since our mission is so great, we then moved on to the importance of staying restored, renewed, and refreshed. The fourth commandment is both a creation ordinance, a principle of the universe requiring us to go hard six days but then rest, and it is a moral calling for Christians, setting apart the Lord's Day for worship and spiritual renewal. For further prayerful thought, number one, in your own words, how would you summarize the biblical view of secular work? How is a high view of creation connected to a high view of work? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Next week, we begin a new series, Reconstructing Manhood and Womanhood in a Culture Where They Are Broken. This series is vital not only because of the assault upon God's design going on in the culture, but because our own sin fractures the way we and our sons live out our masculinity and the way our wives and daughters live out femininity. God's design of gender and sexuality is the path of life. We need to know that path and how to direct our loved ones down it. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. And if this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ, as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well. Well,